chapter 1. You'll be able to find that after Chronicles, before Psalms. Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But... If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcasts in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. So far the reading. In response to the reading, let's now sing together from Psalm 44, verses 1, 4, 5, and 8. That we'll be focusing on this morning is taken from our reading, our passage, Nehemiah chapter 1. And we'll be looking in particular at the verses 8 to 9 here. Nehemiah chapter 1, the verses 8 to 9. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. I want to focus in particular on the words, remember the word. The call for God to remember. Remember. 
beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Up in Owen Sound, we have begun a sermon series, working our way chapter by chapter through the book of Nehemiah. And with this sermon today, we see ourselves at the beginning of this book, at the beginning of a new book, a new sermon series, focusing on this character, Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, if I would have a name for this series, I would name it the cupbearer to the king. The title for this is significant because it points out the position of Nehemiah as a prominent servant in the court of the king, in the court where he's serving. But it also has a bit of a double meaning there. You can see how he's a servant in the court of the most high king. The court of God himself. It shows that despite his lofty status, he recognizes who his true king is. He recognizes whom he serves. He serves the God of heaven. Now as we enter into this first chapter of Nehemiah together, this truly comes to the fore. With his opening words, he establishes his position before God. He recognizes the position of the nation And he brings that before the Lord. And he acknowledges the holiness of the God that he serves. He recognizes that in all of that, his only hope, his only hope lies in these words. Remember your word, O Lord. We'll see first of all how this comes out in a background of exile. And how it carries on through a covenantal prayer. Now, for those of you who are new to the book of Nehemiah, you may not know much about the exile, so I'll take a moment to explain the background. The exile was the punishment that Israel was warned about so many centuries before. When they entered the land as one nation, God had told them that if they rebelled, and if they rejected him as God, the ultimate authority in their lives, they would be taken from the land that he was now giving them. They would be besieged, he said. Plague, famine, and the sword would destroy them. And after all of that, God would scatter them among the peoples from one end of the earth to the other to live as exiles, to live as strangers, as foreigners. This became a reality over half a millennium, uh, already after over half a millennium in the promised land. In that time, Israel had rebelled time and time again. The north had separated from the south with the north keeping its name Israel and the south taking Judah as a national name. And in 722, it happened. Israel's wickedness And rebellion had reached its fullness. And God sent them into exile. Now, despite having seen the consequences of rebellion, Judah didn't last much longer. They held out for a few more decades, but in 586, they too fell. But despite the fact that they deserved to be wiped from the face of the earth for their rebellion, against God. 
God still showed his mercy to them. This punishment would not be without end. Jeremiah prophesied that, yes, they would feel the consequences of God's anger for 70 years. We can see that in Jeremiah 29, verse 1 to 14. We can see it again in Daniel 9. But after 70 years, they would return home. After 70 heart-wrenching years, apart from the city of Jerusalem, the city of God's favor, cut off from the Holy Land, and feeling the righteous anger of God, he would allow them to return. And this is where we find ourselves today. God's anger has relented. The people are returning. And yet, Nehemiah is mourning. Why? Why is he so sorrowful? The reason for Nehemiah's sorrow comes in the opening report. Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, has just come back from the Holy Land. Since his homeland is close to his heart, Nehemiah asks for a report. Hanani and his companions do not have good news. They say the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now some people connect this burning to the exile. But there's it, that, that wouldn't be completely correct. The book of Nehemiah must be taken within, his, within its context to understand where they're beginning at here. Now, the book of Nehemiah is directly connected to the book of Ezra that comes right before it. In fact, for a time, the book of Nehemiah was so closely connected that it was called Second Ezra. What we see in the book of Ezra is that by this point in time, the temple and the altar have both been rebuilt. In Ezra 9 verse 9, we even read of Ezra saying that God gave the returned people a command to rebuild the ruins of Jerusalem and build a wall. Now, if we take that into account and add to that the resistance that is later faced by Nehemiah in this book, it seems that this episode occurs after their long time in exile. The people were trying to rebuild, but leaders from the surrounding nations were not happy with the slow return of Judah to a position of strength. They would much rather have weak neighbors. And so they actively seek to undermine the work that's being done right now in Judah, within the borders of Jerusalem, the holy city. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. We read, fierce opposition faced the people. And many of them would have felt that it was their own fault. They had returned to the land as the graciousness of God had allowed. Some of them had moved into the countryside, while many others had moved into the city of Jerusalem itself. Under Ezra, many reforms had been put in place. The temple had been dedicated, and the feasts were being celebrated for the first time in a very long time. 
Yet the people still rebelled. As the book of Ezra draws to a close, we read, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. In addition to this, he writes that they had taken some of the people from the surrounding pagan nations as wives in direct rebellion against the command of God. Now at this point, it can be easy to feel angry with the people, with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. You say to them, look at all that God has done for you. And then, finally, after all this time period, he's put you into exile because that's what he promised would happen. And now he's let you back into the land and you're repelling again. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? Now, before we heap up condemnation on the people of God, brothers and sisters, I want you to take a step back. There's a statement that I heard not too long ago which is quite fitting for this situation. Wherever you see the name of Israel or Judah in the Old Testament, try putting your own name in. Because your own rebellion is not too much different. There's a lot of truth to that statement. Consider your own life. God has laid claim to it. He's laid claim to it in two possible ways. In the first, for you who are believing members of this congregation, God has laid claim to your life. You were bound in slavery to sin. You had sin as your master and were under the power of the devil. Yet God, God ransomed you. When Jesus came down in the flesh, he suffered and died for you. He ransomed you, body and soul. Not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood. And has freed you from the power of the devil to make you his own possession. That is why you call him your Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ. You belong to him. God has laid claim to your life. For those of you who may not yet believe, you don't escape from God's claim of lordship over your lives. Why? Because he is God. The creator of all things, including you. You may claim to be autonomous, to be independent, but you were created. Every breath that you take is a gift from him. Every step that you take is his grace granting you a chance to recognize his lordship. You are no more self-governing or autonomous than the pot that was made by the potter or the painting that was painted by the master artist. By the very fact that he has made you, he lays claim of ownership over your life. You may not recognize this, but it's true. God has laid claim to you too. So whatever our situation is, 
whether we believe or whether we do not believe, we all live under God's lordship. And now for those who believe, you receive a double blessing, for you live in a new freedom that's been granted to you. The way to the promised land has been opened to you. And yet, we still rebel. Each of us has areas in our lives which we hold out. Each of us has areas where we think, I don't really want to give that up. Or, that would really push me outside my comfort zone. Each of us has areas in our lives in which we think, God wouldn't really hold this against me, right? He understands my situation. He gets it. Despite all of the grace that is poured out over our lives, despite the gift of a new perspective on life, a new family in the people of this congregation, a Savior who literally gave his life so that we can live, we still rebel. We still hold out. We dare not condemn the people of Judah with the words, Oh, I would never do that. Oh, I would never do that. After God brought me back from exile, I would be grateful. Because we have received a new life in Christ. We have been reconciled to God. And yet we rebel. We would do better to ask, how can we rebel before a God who has already been so good to us? God, you have been caring and loving and gracious. How is it possible that you don't cast me down here and now and crush me under your feet? Lord, you haven't. And this is all the more evidence of your grace. You are good and kind so much more than I deserve. Thank you, Lord. For those of you who might not be familiar with the gospel message, even for some of you who are, you might be thinking right now, how is it possible? How is this possible that God will not hold any of this against me? That I can find mercy? To answer that, let's take a second to dive into Nehemiah's prayer. Once we've done that, things will hopefully begin to make a little bit more sense. We'll first look at Nehemiah the person briefly and then go into his prayer. Now, consider this for a moment. Nehemiah is a man who's at the height of his career. As cupbearer to the king, he's someone who is close and trusted. He is someone who is dear to the heart of the most powerful man in the world at that time. And yet we see in verse 4 that he weeps and mourns, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And he doesn't just pray. He besieges the gates of heaven with prayer. He mourns for many days, fasting and praying. Now as a high official in the king's court, he would have had many duties to carry out from day to day. Thus, he would not have always been on his knees But in his heart, he was ever before the throne of grace, begging and pleading with God. Maybe some of you have heard the words from Philippians, the command to pray without ceasing, and perhaps wonder how they might be carried out. Well, you can see that in the life of a man like Nehemiah. He's a living and breathing example of someone who began his work in prayer, continues in prayer, and ends in prayer. 
You can see that as you read the book of Nehemiah. It's drenched in prayer from beginning to end. In all of his daily work, God wasn't far from his mind. Now, in light of this, it might be easy to put Nehemiah up on a pedestal. And some people do this. They say, look how great a man Nehemiah was. Look how good he was at praying. You should be like that too. And that's the end of the sermon. That's the application. They might even point to his success in having risen to a top level, a top position of government as proof that this prayer works. But that would be missing the point entirely. And this Sir, this uh, book wasn't written to elevate the name of Nehemiah, but to elevate the name of God. And that becomes eminently clear in Nehemiah's prayer. Let's turn to that for a moment. He prays. In uh, chapter 1, verse 4, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps the covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night, For the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Now, I want you to notice three things here about this prayer. First of all, he doesn't immediately launch into his request. He doesn't dive into a laundry list of items for God to fulfill for him. He postpones his cry for help. Because otherwise this would be something that comes from his own desire to get out of the situation that he's in. It would be a request that's based on who he is rather than on who God is. We sometimes fall into this trap. Coming before God, we don't take the time to speak with him. Prayer is not a conversation anymore. It's just a list of demands. But what Nehemiah does here is a recognition of who he is in relation to God. The next two points are subcategories of the first. It is his relationship to God, his recognition of who God is, that's the second point that I'd like to draw your attention to. You can see how the first part of Nehemiah's prayer here is similar to the Lord's Prayer that we're all so familiar with. We say, our Father in heaven, reminding us not to think of our Uh, not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner. Nehemiah recognizes that he's not coming before one of the gods of the nations. He's not coming before a god that can be manipulated by doing the right things, by dropping some money at the base of the altar, by sacrificing one or two sheep. God's hand can't be forced. He's far above us in power, And in majesty, he is a great and awesome God. It's appropriate for the Christian to approach God in this way. We recognize that he is the all-powerful, 
that he is all-powerful, that he is God. And because he is the great and awesome God, on that point alone, he is worthy of worship. But he doesn't stop there. Nehemiah also draws out the personal relationship that God has with his people. He draws God's attention to his covenant promises. God is not just the God who is in control of the universe, but he's drawn himself in to a special relationship with his people. In fact, it's on this basis that his people are able to draw near to him at all. God is so holy that he can't even stand the sight of sin for a moment. But he has chosen to come into a relationship with his people and allow them to draw near by purifying them. In Nehemiah's day, through the covenant ceremonies. These words of Nehemiah are a recognition that God himself has taken that first step. He has crossed the divide. And it's only by his mercy that we can relate to him. The second thing that Nehemiah prays about, and that's the final thing that I'd like you to notice about these opening words, is the sin of himself and the people. He's putting himself in his place. He recognizes that both he and the people of Israel can't demand anything from God. They have no right to take anything from God. And he doesn't limit it to the people of God either. He takes personal responsibility for his own contribution to the mess. God owes him nothing. He elaborates there. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Now he doesn't bring up anything specific in this written down version of the prayer, although it wouldn't surprise me in the least if in the many hours and days that he spent praying to God, that he listed them out in detail. But the point that he's bringing forward in this small section is that whether they might have sinned against one portion of the law or another, they have broken it in its entirety. They have been unfaithful. And so comes a key word. Remember. Remember. This is a word that comes back frequently. It's an important aspect of this book, and it's the basis of his request here. Remember. Remember, I pray you, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Yes, there's the recognition of wrong. Yes, they felt the consequences. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of heaven, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. There. There is the key. Not on the basis of what I've done. It's all on the basis of God's promises. All on the basis of God's mercy. These are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. 
O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. He's saying, Lord, you've redeemed us now. You promised us that if we repented and turned to you, you would hear us and embrace us. Please, listen. Listen and hold to that promise. And he says, and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This final line shows the thought that's finally dawned on Nehemiah. He's prayed and now time has come to take action. He has come before the heavenly king and now he must come before this earthly king. And brothers and sisters, that brings us to where we are today. We don't enter this book looking to Nehemiah as our example. We don't put him on a pedestal. Rather, we enter this new book being once again reminded of the depth of our own need and the mercies of our God. Not what our hands have done can save our guilty souls. It's not our works, not our toiling that can make us whole. It's nothing that's based on our feelings that can make us right before God. Not our prayers, not our sighs, not our tears can accomplish this. We deserve death for our sins. Romans 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. And some of you may feel the weight of your personal battles heavy on yourselves. You recognize that this isn't just a minor flaw in your character. This isn't something that's just not a big deal. It's wickedness. It's rebellion. You're before a holy God and you cannot stand. Now whether you're a longtime believer or someone who's new to the faith, I want you to listen carefully. There is a way out. There is a path to freedom. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. This is the path that's new and more comprehensive than that which Nehemiah faced. He had sacrifices to remind him, we have Christ. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Turn away from your sin daily and put it behind you. Repent and come before God saying, Lord, I have acted corruptly against you. I have not kept your commands. And so remember, I pray, the words which you promised so long ago. That we may repent and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Lord, on the basis of what I, not on the basis of what I have done, but on the basis of who you are. You are the almighty God who is able to do all things. You are the covenant God, the one who established a relationship with us. And you made this firm through the sacrifice of your son. By your son, you bridge the gap. By your son, you allow us to draw near. And so, Father, not on the basis of what I have done, but on the basis of who you are, on the basis of your faithfulness, on the basis of Jesus Christ who died for me, forgive me and let me draw near. And believe that the God who is faithful will hear. 
Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, does rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Amen. In response to the proclamation of the word, let's sing together from Psalm 92, the verses 1, 4, 5, and 6.